Get to the church blind! Get to the church blind! Go! Now! I'm Pete Mitchell, and he's Peyton Jones, and you're listening to Hardcore Church Planning, the companion podcast for the Church Planner Podcast and Church Planner Magazine. Each week, we'll bring you interviews from planners who are in the trenches making it happen right now. These active church planners bear it all, share their successes, their failures, and what they'd wish they'd known when they were first starting out. Listen in to discover how God is working in their church plan. Hey, church planner, this is Pete Mitchell. And this is Peyton Jones. And you are listening in to another episode of Hardcore Church Planting. And uh, this episode, we've got a guest we've had on before. Peyton, why don't you introduce our guest? Well, you know, it's an honor. We've uh, got Alan Hirsch with us, and uh, I got to be careful not to butter him up too much because uh, the, we were just having a conversation about Australians that you you got to be careful giving Australians compliments. But but I would say we're speaking truth here. We have on our show uh, Alan Hirsch, who's a multiple book writing author. He is considered by many a uh, missional thought architect. And uh, he's written, I mean, a huge score of books, uh, The Shaping of Things to Come with his partner in crime, Michael Frost, um, The Forgotten Ways, and various other books with other authors and people, The Permanent Revolution, the list goes on and on. And uh, of course, he is a, a mainstay at the Exponential Conference, a church planter, and uh, I would say a friend of Church Planner Magazine and Podcast. So welcome on to the show, Alan. Thank you very much. Good to be with you, Pete. So, yeah, thanks for having me. One of the questions, Alan, that we always like to start off with is for the part of our audience who may not be as familiar with you, tell us your story of how you came to faith. Right. Well, I'm a bit of a weird duck. Um, I was uh, born in South Africa. Um, my parents come from, uh, they were South African born themselves, but only first generation. And then, so they, their parents came from various parts of Europe, from Jewish, uh, families, um, from both Eastern Europe and from Germany and Latvia. Uh, they all coalesced in South Africa. And then, uh, I was born, oh, I just had my birthday not so long ago, awful 57 now, whatever, a long time ago. In South Africa, I grew up in uh, as a Jewish kid in racist apartheid South Africa, which is really mm. tough. Um, I hated apartheid; never made sense to me, um, and uh, it just seemed to me something fundamentally at odds with uh, with human morality, and it just seemed deeply immoral. Um, anyway, so I fought my way through school. I, a lot of people look at me; and I'm not a very big guy, but I was actually quite a good scrapper <laughs> 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 because I, you know, I was always the effing Jew, and um, and as you know, and it was, and also you know the equivalent, you know whatever I was supported, you know was not for apartheid, and I couldn't stand up for it. So I had fights on so many levels, and uh, I did quite well. I think that shapes you in a big way. I can, I can. Uh, um, CP, I told you, I told you, little people, you don't mess with them. Pete, Pete doesn't, right. Pete doesn't respect the little man. <laughs> we'll take it down in no time, man. Amen, brother. That's right. And if we team up on you, dude, it's like. You don't want that. I just I have a vision of uh, Spaceballs when he's holding him out with his hand and he's just swinging and can't hit the guy. Sorry. But. Hey, Time Bandits was a good movie, man. That's all I'm saying. Made the rest of us feel powerful. 
anyway, so yeah, my super training years through school, I ended up called to the military and did two years call up. Not something I wanted to do, but anyway, I ended up in infantry uh, in a, as a medic. So I ended up kind of in medical kind of corps. But, uh, uh, you know, for me, that was not an easy experience either. It was still apartheid South Africa, and it was either that or three years of jail, and I chose two years in the military instead. Um, and uh, But in order to cope with it, I did a copious amounts of marijuana. And um, and during the, the, you know, while we were there, you know, like I, I can't imagine you guys, you look so healthy and, 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 uh, and straight and kind of, you know, holy and, that you wouldn't even understand this, but you know, people do get together in groups and they talk all weird stuff, right? And the guy who was <laughs> a, the leader of our group was a guy called Murray. Um, great story there in itself. But uh, Murray, anyway, came to the, you know, has this encounter with Jesus uh, one weekend and comes back a changed man. He was always the leader of our group, anyway. Yeah, we always looked up to him. And all of a sudden, he introduces Jesus into our into our conversations, and um, he doesn't leave us. This is interesting because I mean, he doesn't. Uh, leave us, he actually stays part of our group and still very much part, you know, he doesn't partake any longer and he's much better behaved, but he remained a friend and uh, a comrade right within our group. And that, I think, gave me a, an image of what witnessing an incarnational manner. You know, he just did it very naturally. And anyway, through his, you know, his witness and his ministry, I eventually, in many ways, had huge encounters with the Holy Spirit uh, and eventually this, you know, moved to Australia, and then about a year after I was in Australia, uh, I was, um, I just about, I knew God was after me, and I was to give my life to him, I knew it, I was going to die, and I felt that God had <clears throat> been trying to catch my attention for a while, and, uh, and I knew that, um, I just knew that I'm coming to a fork in the road, that it's either, it's death, now I don't know if it's physical or spiritual or both, I have no idea, I just knew that my time was up, and God God had enough. So I started looking for where I can go and find someone to bring me to the Lord, right? So I I, um, I was working at this kind of electronic store and I heard about this one other store in the in the in the in the brand um, where this guy was a Christian guy as a manager who was Bible bashing everyone. No one could stand working with him. So they all cleared out and I decided to send me there. And uh, true enough uh, he brought me to the back to the Lord in the back of the Tandy store and then um, Introduced me to his pastors and all that. There's this like really snake handling types of you Pentecostals, know, and I have this huge encounter with the Holy Spirit, and it's just fundamentally changed my life. Hmm. And uh, yeah, so yeah, not long after that, I went into you know felt called to the ministry in that in that experience. I just knew that my life was now determined, and that uh, my wife has even a weirder story. But we end up kind of meeting in about a year, year and a bit after that, and. Um, we just soulmates from there on in, you know. God mm. among weirdos, and uh, we know God among the weird. And uh, prevenient grace, yeah, John Wesley called it, notion that God is involved in every person, calling them to himself in and through Jesus. Right? So God's the great evangelist, and he evangelized us where we were. My Deborah, she came to the Lord on acid, watching the late great planet, planet Earth. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like many others from that <laughs> no. time. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, strange days. Anyway, so that's that's my story. You asked. Very cool, very cool, man. I I can see just hearing that story. There's some things I didn't know, but I can see a little fingerprints, you know, 
when when you say that things are ding okay that makes sense yeah. now uh, that makes sense very cool man so um tell tell us a little bit um We'll start off with Forgotten Ways because you've got a new edition of that out, which is fantastic because I think, Alan, you were the guy saying stuff way before. I I think you pioneered a lot of the things that that people are talking about now today. Um, I can remember reading Shaping of Things to Come in my final year, maybe my second and final year in Wales. And I was kind of feeling like, and I'm sure you get this a lot, just like nobody's put this into words, but this is a lot of the stuff I feel. And particularly being in Europe, which is kind of almost like being in a time machine of the future. But um, a lot of what you were saying, I think, harkens, uh, you know, almost like a voice from the future calling America today to prep for what's coming. Um, tell us a little bit about the forgotten ways. What are the forgotten ways? Yeah, so just on <clears throat> just a comment on uh, on what you were saying there, Peyton. So we've not, I don't think we talked about shaping, but that book um, did land at a certain point, which catalyzed the conversation. But it's interesting, like uh, the, the 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 overwhelming response I get to any of my writing. Uh, the the name forgotten ways will imply this, by the way, is that it seems to me most people respond by saying. Um, what you just said, it's like, uh, you didn't tell me something I fundamentally didn't kind of know or kind of perceive, but you put words, uh, you, you, you know, help me kind of think about what I was already thinking, which actually is to say that the Holy Spirit's at work. It's not mm-hmm. about, me. um, these are actually something that, that, that these are ideas that, that, that actually are being birthed by the Holy Spirit all around the globe, and um, it resonated very highly, you know, with people who feel that was their, it was their story, and, and mm. it, it made meaningful <clears throat> what they were experiencing. <clears throat> so that, yeah, that's an interesting uh, dimension of things, and also the idea from the future is another one. Uh, yeah. Is that, yeah, it's like back to the future stuff, right? It is, and, and kind of one of the, the strengths you have, though, because I remember when the Permanent Revolution came out, I knew Tim Ketchum, and I had read uh, the description, and then I bought it. And I remember my manuscript for Church Zero was in. I remember writing you saying, hey, man, I promise you I didn't steal this stuff. The same kind of thing where it was kind of almost like, you know, uh, like we were saying, like the Holy Spirit saying the same thing. But the thing I really value about you is that you are a researcher. You like if I write my stuff, I remember telling people church zero is like the dumb man's permanent revolution. Like in other words, you do your homework. It, it's, it's not just that prophetic sense, but you're also a researcher. So you back things, you say things like, uh, like the fact that, you know, the early church reached this size and you'll, you'll have cited scholars who, and, and so that's one of the strengths of what you do, right? Is it does have that prophetic edge. But it's also solidly researched, and that's a rare combination. Thanks, brother. I like to think that substance is important, and that in addressing, you know, issues of systemic change in the organization in the church, uh, we have to speak to the level of imagination. We have to be willing to think very carefully uh, to the very core of the issue, um, to the primordial principles that direct us. You know, very mm-hmm. important. So, particularly in a time of seismic change as we're experiencing now. Yeah. So, so yeah, what, so oh, yeah, sorry. Well, same, sorry. 
about the forgotten ways? I'm I am my own worst distractor. So and and to be honest, I'm just excited to have you on here. I, I'm sure we could talk for hours. At least we could interview you for hours. But yeah. here's the deal: um, we know we know that time is an issue. But uh, what what are the forgotten ways? So the forgotten ways was a, a book I wrote um, that <clears throat> started when I was at a conference once, where the the guy asked the question: How does the church grow from? as little as 25,000 in year 100, Rodney Stark's figure, uh, to low figure by his own estimation, to up to about 20 million 200 years later in year about 300. Uh, um, uh, the question was, uh, you know, you know, how did they do that? Now, I can't even remember how the person answered it because, to be honest, my whole life just caught up in that moment. Talk about a Kairos, you know, being captured by a challenge. I felt that my... Yeah, it was one of my purposes in life to answer that question. How did they do it? And then, of course, to factor in, they were illegal. They didn't have church buildings. They didn't have the Bible. They didn't have internet. They didn't have seeker-sensitive. They didn't have youth groups. They didn't have publishing houses. All the stuff that we think we need to, to, to develop a church, but how did they grow like that? Against the odds. And they were persecuted. So it seemed to me a very important question, if you can get under that hood. Uh because what does it say about the church that God intended us to be, if at all? Does it say anything that has got universal significance? Uh, or is it just something that describes a historical phenomenon that's now past? And I began to look at other examples in history where you see a similar growth pattern. So hyperbolic growth, rapid transformational multiplication growth with high impact socially, right? That's what I was looking for. And uh, the... So the yeah the answer really came in a form of a six-dimensioned uh, kind of model. Um, it's more of a dynamic system, if anything. But if I, I'll, I'll say that as simply as I can, <clears throat> it really made up these elements. I call them mDNA. They act like DNA. They are organizing principles or uh, cornerstone concepts that that on which everything else builds. Like they're primordial. They they have a, a first order principle first things and um and they go like this jesus is lord the centrality of this particular person called jesus who happens to also be our covenant king and who then dictates how we understand the world and we, we're responsible to him but we see god we see everything everything changed because of jesus right our view of god our view of church our view of mission our view of the world everything's impacted by this person so to what degree are movements obsessed and how do they organize themselves around this central figure, this transcendent center? Uh, that's the Christology issue. So that's the centerpiece that informs everything else. And then the other five kind of orbit around it, um, discipleship and disciple-making, uh, which means we have a clear understanding what discipleship is, and I would argue it's modeled on Jesus. It's really becoming more and more like him and him living his life in me. But then... Uh, Disciple-making is this idea of having a clear model in our minds and how we actually design a system that is able to produce you know, disciples in scale. Um, so it's, it's, it's one thing to have a definition, but it's another thing to have a clear pro process in the life of an organization. So that's kind of the two dimensions there. So that's number two. They don't go necessarily in any order, but I just do them in this order. Then I do incarnational mission, or what I call missional incarnational impulse, two sides of the same coin. This is the how the church extends itself over time and space. 
Um, it goes out, missional, missio, sent. It's sent into the world. That's the missional one. Incarnational is it goes down deep into culture and embodies the gospel in ways that make sense. Jesus moves into the neighborhood through his people. And if Jesus is the incarnation of God, then I believe the church or the Christian is called to be incarnation of Jesus, little Jesus, to be present in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a locality with a very distinct expression that's true of the gospel. So that's the missional, you know, the extending kind of side of it, so that, that I believe all movements that go into exponential growth curves have to have that. They like the sneeze factor, right? Um, and then, uh, and then uh, so I then do... Uh, I call it now the apest culture, and it really looks to the fivefold. In Ephesians 4, we have to have a movements that go to scale like that and have huge impact have got to have uh, leadership and ministry capacities that are equal to the task of generating, sustaining, and maintaining movement. Um, and the prevailing form of ministry that we've been handed down is built on a much more diluted, diminished um reductionist model of the shepherd teacher. So we take two out of the five and expect to be able to do what Jesus intended us to do. And I think it's designed, mm -hmm. this is a fatal flaw in the ecclesiology that we've inherited. So, you know, correction here has huge implications. And this is what you were talking about there, Peyton. Then I look at organic systems. So that's number five, five I think it is. So organic systems it looks how the how do movements organize themselves. Uh, as they expand rapidly. So that's a whole new different way of thinking about organization and a centralized structure. When you push power and function to the outermost level, you revive and op you operate like a movement, not, not, like, not like an institution. So there's a whole lot of stuff there about organization. And finally, uh, the other factor is the type of community that develops in context of ordeal and challenge. And I call it liminality communitas. Liminality is the precipitating conditions of challenge, change, ordeal, danger, disorientation, humiliation, um, hmm. you know, that precipitate a new way of relating together. They either kill you or make you better. Uh, but it's really become a group of comrades, not just a group of associates. Uh, it binds us together. Think of a sports team there. But it's really putting adventure back into the venture mm -hmm. and learning to take risks as a group of people and being shaped by those risks. All six are necessary of the uh, six elements are necessary to produce exponential growth. Uh, if you take one out, you don't get there. You will be good, but you won't get to exponential high impact. So that's the thesis behind the forgotten ways. Yeah. Very powerful stuff. And that, that last point you mentioned, um, again, it's one of those things that, that is a church planner for me, uh, somebody who's church planted a number of times and, and helped others church plant and sent planters out, having a term for that unique, uh, you, you call it communitas, communitas um, that, that liminality, that communitas, but that it's unique. And until you had put it into words, I had never, I had never known what to call that. But it's probably the most valuable thing for any church planner team, and yeah. you've you've written extensively about it. But it, it's unique. It's not it's not tight fellowship. It's not a bunch of Christians in a in a in a in a house church. It is that that bonding that happens almost like a platoon in the military, where they've got a mission objective, yeah. and they're, they're they're together. But there's that they would lay their lives down and die for one another. 
there's this, and, and it's unique. And I was so glad when I came across you spelling that out that I had never even, in a weird way, I had subconsciously been aware of it, yep. but I hadn't consciously been aware until I read it in something you wrote and went, oh my gosh, you're, that that's a thing. You're right. Uh, so again, it goes to this issue that I believe these are one of the things about what I call apostolic genes, the six together, uh, is latent within all God's people. And that so you don't have to uh, import it from outside. It's already there. It's in our primal story and in our, the nature of who we are as the people of the gospel, Jesus' people, the people of the spirit. And, you know, um, we have the scriptures. Those, we have everything we need to get the job done, but we just don't often realize it. God has given us everything we need. And so, yeah, the idea of communitas and all that, yes, it's part of all the great adventures, sports teams, like I said, the military experiences of all the time. And you might not even like the people in your, your unit. <laughs> I didn't when I was there. I, there's very few people I had friends with in my, in my platoon. But we had to love each other because we needed, in a different way, because we needed to know that, you know, our lives depended on, on the other person doing what they you know, that comradeship is a very deep and profound thing. And, yeah, church planters, uh, I think that's a very, very important thing. I have a theory, Ben, uh, that most people uh, join sports teams, team sports, uh, not for the exercise. They can probably do better on their own, but mainly for the community that they get, as, which is really the community task experience. What's new in your uh, your new edition of The Forgotten Ways? Well, Pete, the, uh, uh, I didn't want to change, I, I couldn't change it terribly much, but, you know, like I said, the basic structure's there, but it's a, a seriously more mature book. Uh, it's 10 years of reflection, and a huge amount has happened in 10 years. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of uh, reflection back uh, over the last 10 years, and also thinking about how my own thinking has developed. Um, uh, so I, I push much more the kind of thinking paradigm and system because I still think that's the primary battle that we need to win is the, is the, at the level of imagination. So I address that level more so. Um, and then, you know, lots more examples. There's so many wonderful new examples uh, of new forms of engagement. Uh, if you take each of the six elements, I mean, there's 10 years has really shown a huge amount of shift. Mm. Uh, it's interesting, uh, guys. My predecessor, I did denominational work. Uh, kind of headed up a denomination, would you believe it? Um, but uh, my predecessor uh, in my role had been in his role about 35 years. Um, and uh, I remember him saying to me, Alan, what you don't achieve in one decade, you will in the next. And I said, la, 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 la. I was a 35-year-old hothead. There was no way I wanted to hear that nonsense. No. You're talking decades here, dude? I'm not interested in decades, right? And the truth is actually, I think he's right. Well, you don't see what happens year by year. You look back over a decade, a huge amount has shifted. Mm. So we are like uh, eons away from where we were 10 years ago. I mean, and I think healthier as a result. So there's a lot of that. It's about a 45% upgrade in the book, but it's really bolstering the ideas, correcting some of them on very fine points, changing some of the language, making it easier, writing a bit better. I think hopefully after 10 years, I'm a better writer and uh, it's, it's, it's more accessible and it's, I bolstered it. It's a bit bigger book, but you know, it's meant to be a substantial book, which is what Peyton was really talking about. And, and the other thing too, is I think as a writer, you tend to distill 
um, your thinking, you know, the, the more you stand in front of a group of people and interact with them or get questions, you think, oh, you know, I, I didn't follow that through. And I, I, I think if any of us could go back and, and revise our, our earlier books, it'd be, it'd be a powerful thing. So, and of think, course, especially yeah. on for me, Forgotten Ways is my centerpiece. I mean, it guides everything else I do. Literally all the other books I've written since then have been elaborations of the elements. They're standalones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, that's a good they, point. They all really are. They reference back to the primary, this text here. So good. Well, yeah. that, that brings me to um, another thing. I, don't let me forget before we're done. I do want to talk about the Forgotten Ways um, handbook because that, that was really interesting. I actually didn't know that existed until the new edition of this came out. Oh, and I went, what's that? I didn't know that. I, yeah, I thought you might have known about it. I, I didn't know about this. So I was like, oh, wow, that, that thing's kind of cool. So I do want to get you to talk a little bit about that and how to use it. But first, what I'd like to do um, is ask you a little bit of your, your thought journey, because that's fascinating that this was kind of the hub and your other books are spokes out of this main hub. Um, and, and I can see that, but my, my question is, um, this journey, obviously every story has a backstory and every, every thought has a history. So, um, what I'd like to kind of, you know, ask you because you are an original thinker, um, if you could just kind of tell us that, like, where did you find your thinking changing? Because obviously, Coming, I, I don't know what church you were at or, or, you know, when you first came, when you said the guy was Bible bashing you, but obviously there was a journey at some point. At some stage, you had to start thinking, okay, I'm not in Kansas anymore, the way I'm thinking anymore. How, do, how did you start to kind of, I, I guess for lack of a word, kind of break out of the four walls? So um, that's an interesting question. Um I think much of it you can find, you know, in one's uh, my pre-Christian history. Uh, like I said, partly growing up as a Jewish kid in South Africa meant when I understood that apartheid was somehow wrong and, and the government stood for apartheid. So there was always an element in me which where authority uh, was not always just to be submitted to, um, where most people buy into the kind of the, the, the narrative. I had a natural rebellion, which kind of got me into a lot of trouble. But basically it was for following, I believe, a right impulse, which is to say not submit to, to something that's fundamentally immoral. Now, how does this play out later on is that what I now call the holy rebel in me, I, I just don't accept necessarily that what we've been handed down is the best deal. Um, I, I respect that you know, God has been at work in his people and much of it has got a lot of wisdom to share. We stand on the shoulders of the past, but I don't necessarily buy into the Christendom authority complex. Um, and I think, you know, so I, I, I say, well, why do we do that? Or there's a, there's a kind of basic holy rebellion. It's holy because I think it's seeking a greater expression of God's kingdom. It's a holy unrest. It's a holy dissatisfaction with the way things are. Uh, calling us to kind of a constant adaptation and change. We can always do this better, right? So I think that's kind of part of the story, bro. Um, um, and then the kind of when I came to the Lord again, I, I said to you like this notion that that God is at work outside the church 
uh, in strange and wonderful ways. Like Muslims come to the Lord primarily through dreams. I understand that stuff because there wasn't a Christian in my world. You know, I hadn't heard the gospel. I had a lot of Christians around South Africa. It's a very Christian country, inverted commas. Um, but I never really had the gospel explained to me in any way that made any sense. And, and uh, but, but the funny thing is that, you know, I came to the Lord with a group of, you know, marijuana smokers, you know, and it was, it was a solid conversion, you know what I mean? Like I, I was one to Jesus, you know, and following, I think the Holy Spirit's work, you know, it wasn't well healthy, but, it, you know, God was at work there. And I think I can see God at work in places where pe most people can't. I still go to Burning Man to get a dose of freaks. I love weirdos and freaks. I think they teach us a lot about things, and uh, we need you, to respect them. You you would love Refuge Long Beach. <laughs> <laughs> you collect That's, them. Uh, collector, I call myself. Free collector. It, it's the same with us. I, I think my wife and I, there's times my wife's looked at me and said, "Hun, is there something wrong with us? Like, do we, you know, because we gravitate towards the marginalized. Yeah, it's yeah. just what we've always done. I don't. I don't know if that's just part of the frontier, but uh, I, I did conclude from much of any study of missions. I'm not a historian or the son of one, but what I can tell is that movements of renewal always arise first and foremost in movements of mission on the edges, where the church is cutting new ground, precipitates new learnings that that gets translated back to the center. That mm. so it doesn't matter whether you talk about Pentecostalism. And the Holy Spirit comes on a group of ex-slaves, mainly women, black women in, in Los Angeles, and the whole world is changed by that. It doesn't matter where you are. When you talk about Wesley's engaging among the poor and the outcast, uh, any one of those movements always start Jesus. You know, the, the early church, uh, it wasn't like a, it wasn't a mission to the kind of center. It was a mission to the marginal and, um, and those excluded. So there's something there, but it's something there that's important for us. And, uh, I think we need to get involved in the edges. I think there's much to be learned from that stuff. Yeah. But uh, the other other things that I would say that had changed me. I mean, like that prevenient grace is really important. Stamped into who I am. Uh, I know that I know the Lord. I know who brought me to the Lord and all that stuff. So, but I think the other things are being placed um, in an inner city. My training, nothing in my theological training, my seminary prepared me for what I was going into, into the local setting in inner city, South Melbourne. Uh, it is like classic inner cities, a melting pot of all kinds of subcultures and weirdos and, um, and, and really, you know, a very vibrant center, also an LGBT center in, in our city. Um, so all that, also our red light district, all that stuff was there. And we had to kind of work out how do we engage in this new tribalism with these people, there's no ways they're going to come to a standard form of truth. There's not a hope of a snowball's hope in hell. They were just not interested, and we wouldn't speak their language anyway. So we, we had to, we were forced like we are in Papua New Guinea, and we had to reach out. How do we reach out to these people groups? So we had to naturally think like missionaries. And so we began to church plant various new expressions and experiment uh, in forms of church that kind of were appropriate to different settings. We we did street outreach to the hookers, and we started a church called Matthew's Party. We did outreach to Jewish people, and we did a, a thing called Celebrate Messiah. You know, so there, it was quite a lot of experimentation. And then the other big event was to, when I was recruited to, to the denominational role, to head up a denominations, particularly its strategic and leadership, mission leadership and development was the kind of title. It's quite a big role, right? And, um, uh, 
you know, and then forced to see the thing from a completely different angle. So, you know, you're looking from the grassroots up, you can see the tribalism and the fact that, you know, they're going to have to communicate very differently in these environments and have Mm. a missionary stance in relationship to our context. It's not just evangelism anymore. Evangelism can pluck the low-hanging fruits, but you talk about mission and church planning that that goes after the high-hanging fruits, it's a different ballgame to the way we generally do mission now. It is. And I've, you know, I snuck into your church a few years ago into the, um, you weren't there that night, but it was uh, Sunday night. I came with Big John, the uh, ultimate fighter, Um, you know, hitchhiked with him, uh, showed up and, uh, and you were in an, in an environment that, that kind of art collective community there in, in LA. I don't know if you guys still meet there, but that was high hanging fruit and that was going to take some time and some, some investment. And, uh, I, you know, it's something I've, I've always kind of been impressed is you're, you're going into hard to reach places. And I think that's so important when I'm hearing guys that are, that are spinning, you know, Hey, this is what we ought to think. They're also guys modeling what we need to do. And, um, so we appreciate you for that, man. And, uh, I'm sorry. You know, like for, um, uh, Kind of like you think about church planning training. If you can be successful in San Francisco, which is generally a graveyard for church planters, right? Mm-hmm. If you can somehow crack it, you can. The rest of America is yours, baby. That's it. You know, special ops training, right? That's exactly it. That was kind of that was kind of what we with jump school. That was exactly our thought. Was hey, this stuff. This is what we did in Europe. Yep. And uh, and of course, if I were in Europe today. Um, I'd be doing things kind of like you, like we're, you know, that was stuff you did then. So as you're right, new stuff, the new stuff you're doing now, people are just catching on to stuff you might've done 10 years ago, 20 years ago. If I were in Europe today, um, and I'm, and I'm still doing things actively, then those are things that are, that are, again, you're always on the cutting edge in this church planning game. And it, it's part of, I think what's so addictive but, uh, hey, for the sake of time, I, I hate to do this, but I'm going to have to uh, to taper this. Guys, you can catch uh, Alan's book, The Forgotten Ways, the, the new edition. You can find that on Amazon and anywhere that uh, fine Christian books are sold. I don't know why you say that. I stole that from you, Pete. Such a cheesy thing to say, but uh, it's uh, it's there. You can also go. What's that? And not so fine. Books. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And you can also go to um, theforgottenways.com, and there's my train. It's it's Alan. That train is like the trolley on Mister Rogers' Neighborhood. I don't know if you had that in South Africa, but uh, that lets you know it's time for Mister Rogers to put his shoes on and get that cardigan out of the closet. So, uh, all right, Pete. Well, we've got one question that we always like to end our interviews on, Alan, and uh, I'm going to ask it in just a second, but I just want to make one small comment before I get to that question. And before we started the uh, the podcast, uh, you know, we were talking and you mentioned that you're actually here in the States on a, a two-year visa that you just continually renew and and opted to do that instead of becoming a U.S. citizen. And I just want to say that I'm kind of disappointed in that because I would love to be able to tell people that I know a Jewish South African American. And that's just, that's like a term I've never heard before. And I wanted to be able to say, 
I know a Jewish South African American, and I can't. So anyway, yeah, like, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm difficult. The African thing signed on, but um, so I'm saying I want to be American. <laughs> so I'm gonna want to be African American. <laughs> I feel you on that. Pete, Pete taught me the, the 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 phrase. I'm a black man trapped in a white man's body. <laughs> That's how I feel every single day. <laughs> so anyway, here's our question for you, uh, Alan. If you were to get into a physical fist fight with a 57-year-old Albert Einstein, who would win? <laughs> I don't think I could hit Einstein, but um, <laughs> I just think, I, yeah, I think I'd, I'd definitely bow to that one. I, I'm happy to lose on that one. <laughs> you always ask that question? Not we, – we put the person up against the right person. So I I mean, like, Imagine if I like – you let me loose with all my danger on him. I could have killed him, and then then you wouldn't have. <laughs> you know, you yes. definitely want to take me out instead. I think Einstein is <laughs> super significant. Uh, he, was, he was an enigmatic fellow. I think. I think he had many tricks up his sleeve, Einstein, that, that we don't know about. But you I mean, also are a hard man probably, to nail down. Yeah, he probably was a ninja of some sort. Kind of done yes, he probably Thank was, you for that, brother. Definitely, he was a ninja. Darn was right. Really, yeah, interesting dude interesting man well we we picked him it, normally we put like so you know frosty right he's like your best friend when we got guys like derwin gray frost is like the only guy you can pit him against but we know frost wouldn't just beat your buddy probably kill you right <laughs> so we're all we're all a little bit afraid of him um but uh we didn't know who we could pitch you against but we figured you know uh einstein's probably you're you're kind of like the einstein of church planning so we'll, we'll have, give you that and let you uh who did, who did we have derwin fight i think we had derwin fight rick warren didn't we uh, you know we did and uh he bowed often these days we're making the mistake of if we're picking people's heroes they're like oh i couldn't do that i couldn't do that you know i would bow down so we got to find i don't know man we got to start finding the 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 arch nemesis yeah, we, we did have todd wilson fight dave ferguson but that that's not fair and it's fair all at the same time it's you know so yeah we uh and then i think we once we interviewed derwin gray and we made derwin gray fight derwin gray we <laughs> that's true i think we did time. i think we yeah. did we we used to have hugh halter as like a standby for almost everybody you know but yeah 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 you wouldn't want to mess with that guy in a dark yeah <laughs> nah, you, but he's he's a yeah you know he's a pussycat you know he's, that's what he says he yeah. said that. He goes, oh, I'm kind of more of a lover, you know. So. I love that guy. I don't think I could hit him either. Yeah. See? I mean, There's that's... mutual respect in the church planning world. Oh, I have communitas with you. See, it's so funny to me because I could totally hit Peyton if someone were to ask me. That'd be no problem. But, you know, whatever. Pete mentally hits me every podcast. I mean, he's thinking the whole time. He's just looking at my face going, I want to hit that dude. So you, you guys are not in the same room. So that's probably a good thing. Right? <laughs> It probably is a good thing. It is a good thing. I, we're kind of like the, the the grade school teacher that separated us. God knew what he was doing. He kept us in different cities yeah. for a reason. Different Keep us out of trouble. Well, Alan, hey, man, as as per usual, uh, I think we've only had you once, but uh, if have we had Alan on here before? I can't remember now. I thought we did. I, I thought, thought we, we did, did too, but hey, man, I mean, it's always good talking to you. Hits, you know, one way or another, I visited there. There we go. <laughs> There we go. That's He's been true. here. He knew Pete. He was like, hey, Pete. So anyways, <laughs> brother, always good. Thanks for having me. He pointed to his brain for those of our <laughs> listeners. You don't, you don't, you don't battle against Alan's brain. So no, 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 hey. no, like, I'm, I'm that kind of like that splinter in your mind. 
There we go. <laughs> right on. Hey, thanks for coming on. And Arnold, sign us out. Remember, if you are called to church planting, go hardcore or go home. You've been listening to Hardcore Church Planting. Hardcore Church Planting has been brought to you by the Church Planner Podcast and the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the App Store for both Apple and Android devices. If you like this episode, leave us a positive review. If you didn't like this episode, we'll be happy to give you your money back.